Hey, Oasis Church Chicago, Pastor JP here. Hey, we're so glad that you're joining with us on our podcast today. I pray today that this message stirs your faith, that it builds you up, that it draws you closer to the Father's heart, and ultimately that you just feel the embrace of heaven. We would love to stay connected with you and you to stay connected with us. So please feel free to check us out on our website, oasischurchchicago.com, or download our app, Oasis Church Chicago. Also, you can be sure to join with us on our live stream on our YouTube page every Wednesday night and Sunday morning. Now here's today's message. Excited to preach the Bible this morning. Um, Are you excited to receive the word? (laughs) Almost like, yeah. Amen. Um, I don't think I asked this. Do we have any first-time guests with us this morning? One first-time guest. Hello. Hi. Welcome. Welcome. Um, Glad to have you here. it's good to gather together uh, for, for the one that doesn't know me. My name is Nick. I'm one of the leaders here. It's good to preach. It's good to be with you. Um, Pastor JP and Rachel send their love and their greetings to you guys. Um, they had one week. Um, they, I mean, the whole house was sick. Um, little, little Titus ended up in the ER um, and he is now safe, took a turn, he's back home, he's recovering, and they're just spending time as a family, so they're not here with this this morning, um, but they told me to tell all of you uh, that they're so grateful for your prayers, grateful that you guys have reached out to them and loved them in this time, so that I was supposed to do that, and I have done it now. Um, we love you guys if you're watching online. Um, All right. If you were here last week, we started off on a series called A Strong Church. Pastor JP opened us and introduced us uh, to this series. And the thrust of his message, the thrust of the vision was God is calling us, Oasis and the church at large, to return to first love, to get back to basics, to get back to the things that we once did. And one of the definitions that he gave for strong really marked me. I hope it marked you. I think it's worth repeating this morning as we begin at the beginning of this letter. This is what he defined strong as. Able to withstand great force or pressure. Not easily disturbed, upset, or affected. Firmly held or established. What I want to do this morning is from the first chapter of Ephesians, which is the book that we are going to be going through in this Strong Church series, I want to provide a framework for us in this room that will help view ourselves as a strong church. I want to provide a framework for our perspective, the way that we view ourselves, the way that we view our lives, the way that we view our families, the way that we view our jobs, the way that we view our culture, right? If we don't have, and, and this, is the, this, is, this is the thing, right? We all do have a guiding framework and perspective that we are viewing the world from. It's important if you're gonna follow Jesus, if we're going to be a strong church, that we have the correct one, the right one, the one that God has laid out before us. So I'm gonna teach from Ephesians 1 today. We're gonna be looking at the opening 10 verses of this letter 
which in itself is a summary of salvation. It is a summary of the story of salvation. And what I want us to see this morning is the pursuit of God for a bride. The story of salvation is God's pursuit for a people. And we're going to look this morning at three different periods of history that God has pursued his bride. We're going to look before the creation of the world. We're going to look at what God, how God is pursuing his church right now. And we're going to look at what that pursuit leads into for eternity. We all on the same page. My argument, right, my, 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 what I want us to see this morning is that a strong church that has been gripped by this, by, that has been gripped by the reality of God's pursuit in the person of Jesus, it informs their life in such a profound way that it shapes the way that they view the world and everything around them. Cool? If you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians 1. It's going to read like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from the God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are such a good shepherd, faithful to lead us, to guide us, to teach us. And Lord, even our gathering here this morning is our confession that we need you to lead us. We need you to guide us. So we just ask for your help this morning. God, help us to see the way you see. Build in, your, build in us a strength that comes from your perspective. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1942, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis published a set of satire letters he had been releasing weekly in the religious newspaper. These letters were known as the screw tape letters. 
The book consisted of 31 letters penned by Uncle Screwtape, a crafty and experienced devil that had risen into the ranks of the enemy's camp. And Uncle Screwtape is training his young protege, Wormwood, on how to effectively steal, kill, and destroy the lives of Christians. And I want to open this morning by reading an excerpt from his second letter to Wormwood. And as I read, I want us to pay attention to the perspective by which the devil himself sees the Christian, sees the church, and sees the plan of God. This is how it reads. And it's funny, I'm gonna, yeah. My dear Wormwood, I note with great displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. Indeed, in your better moments, I trust you would hardly even wish to do so. In the meantime, we must make the best of the situation. Right? The devil already knows he lost. So he's just trying to make us miserable. There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. One of our greatest allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity. Terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite visible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands. And one little shabby book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad in very small print. Screwtape goes on to instruct Wormwood to work hard on the disappointment or anti-climax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy, God, God is his enemy, not ours. The enemy, God, allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by the stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learn Greek. It occurs when lovers have gotten married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy, God, takes this risk because he has a curious fantasy of making all these, I love this, making all these disgusting little human vermin into what he calls free lovers and servants. Sons is the word he uses. 
what Screwtape highlights in this second letter to Wormwood is the spiritual battle of perspective that you and I are engaged in on a regular basis as those who live between heaven and earth, as those who are both dual citizens in America and in the courts of heaven. Confronted with the real issues and joys of life, this realm, real pain and pleasure, real disappointment and triumph, our great challenge is to see our lives from his perspective. And there is a way that we do this, and it is with the story of the gospel. So this morning, every single one of us that has walked into this place is part of a story. And we're part of his story. And our ability to see ourselves in the story of God is what enables us to not see Gladys in HR, John Mark, the guy in freight. You guys catching what I'm saying? If I were to see you in your glorified, risen state, I'd be tempted to worship you because of the glory that rests inside of you. The challenge is to see ourselves the way that God sees us. And that's what he's getting at here. My argument this morning is that if we are to grow into that type of church, we have to, a strong church, a church able to withstand great force and pressure, a church that's able to not be tossed to and fro by the winds and the doctrines of the world that leverage themselves against the doctrines and wisdom of God that claim to be wise but are actually foolish. If we are to be those types of people, we have to see from God's perspective. What we see in our text this morning is that this uncreated, unchanging, unceasing God has always lived to pursue us. And a pursued church is a church that sees God's pursuit of them and responds accordingly. And so what the writer does is he first introduces himself. We're not going to spend much time here, but he says... I am Paul, and I'm writing to you, and I'm, call, and I'm writing to give the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus. Now, two things here, really just one. You want to know how you're under godly authority? That authority will administer the grace of God and the peace of God over your life. What does that mean? Godly authority takes the grace of Jesus and can filter your life through it and it can encourage you in the grace of God that has been manifested in Jesus. It sees you and leads you from that perspective. And then what it does is it takes the peace of shalom, that heavenly peace, and it brings it into whatever situation you may be going through. Godly authority. It's really, really, and, and let me just say this. All of us in this room are called in that godly authority. So whatever situation you may be finding yourself in, whatever people God has given you to steward, you're called to steward with godly authority, right? So that's our call, right? Manifesting the grace and peace of heaven. When we do that, the world begins to change. Right. He's gonna start and give a summary of the gospel. 
This is called a, a praise or a doxology. This is what he says. Praise be, verse three, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I want us to see first the corporate nature of this call. God didn't bless me. He didn't bless you. He blessed us. But that blessing is conditional. Do you see what it says? We are blessed in a person, and his name is Christ. The connection between being blessed in the heavenly realms is being in Christ. The idea is simple yet profound. Being united to Jesus opens up the eternal and heavenly realm into the lives of ordinary people, ordinary grocers with oily expressions on their face. Unification with Jesus brings us into God's very life. I also want to see what this is intended to do what it's intended to bring forth in us. The gospel, when truly received, brings forth praise. Right? Praise be. Why is that? Why is it that we come in here every single week? Do you ever ask yourself, like, why do we do the same thing every week? I don't know, I ask that question. Like we do the same thing every week. We praise every week. You know, when, right, when we come into an environment like this and you praise God, you're responding to something. More importantly, you're responding to someone who has done something, done something in you, done something to you. And the response is praise. Inversely, that's also why if you come into an environment like this and you can't praise from the depths of your soul, with authentic, genuine praise, what does that mean? I like to say two things. You are either dead or dull. It means that whatever is occupying your mind or your heart hasn't been filtered correctly through that lens of blessing that God has given. The connection Right? The connection with God is not an accident. Being in Christ is not an accident. How many, how, many have you, how many of you have been walking with Jesus for more than 10 years by show of hand? Okay. My question for us this morning is, did that happen by accident? Has God kept you by accident? Did you wake up every day and, oh, I stumbled into being united with the God of the universe on accident? There was a plan. There was a pursuit from God himself over every single one of our lives. There was a plan and a pursuit from God to unite himself to you, to us. To love you. To die for you. To love you in such a way that it transforms your heart into loving him. And so, so this, is, this is the story of the gospel. And this story didn't begin last night when I started writing this. It didn't begin 2,000 years ago when Jesus 
died on the cross. It didn't begin in Genesis 15 when God called Abraham and made a promise to him. It didn't begin when God created Adam and Eve and spoke life into their very bones. It actually created, it began way before all that. What does the text say? Verse four, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ to sonship in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given in the one he loves. I want, once again, I want us to see the corporate nature of this. He didn't choose me. He didn't predestine me. He chose us. He called us in a person that he chose. There's nuance there that is really important, especially when we navigate the waters of election and talk through it like this with people we love, okay? Just that's the reason I'm making it a point there. In other words, before there was a world, before there was you and me, before there was sin, before there was decay and destruction, God had a plan for all of it. And that plan was in the heart and mind of God to be accomplished through his son, Jesus. There's two things that we really should see here that Paul points out. The first is God's motivation for doing this. The second is the intended end of that pursuit. We're gonna see both, we're gonna look at them. The first, the motivation. What does he say? In love, he predestined us. Paul says that love is the motivating factor that moves God into action. This is because God in his nature is a lover. At his core, God lives eternally to love. That messes with us. It doesn't seem logical. But this is the picture that the Bible presents of a benevolent, good, gracious, loving father that eternally exists to love his son. And a son that eternally exists to love and submit to his gracious and benevolent father. And a spirit that lives to intercede and make that love possible. Before there ever was a creation story God existed to love, and he loved himself, and that's not selfish because he's three persons. Creation is the result, the outworking of God's love for God and to invite us into the process. Second, what, does, what is the intended end for God pursuing and loving us? He chose us in him, to be holy and blameless. God chose his bride, the church, to be the ones who were not like everyone else. This is the reversal of the garden. Again, I want us to see this. Before the garden ever manipulated us, God had a plan to restore us. The curse of the garden is that it made human beings like the enemy. And this is clearly seen, right? This is clearly seen in like the world today, 
right? You, you know, there's a lot of talk about like autonomy and like being like your own unique version of yourself, yet everybody's doing the exact same thing. Isn't that ironic? And the prophetic call of the church is to be a people that are set apart, holy unto the Lord. Paul's gonna continue and talk about this more, but this is the reversal of the garden. God calls people to transform them into being types of people that are holy and set apart. This is God's pursuit that once again, going back to verse one, in, now we're in verse six, causes us to praise his glorious grace. So, right, this is a very dense and complex text, but what Paul does to help us is throw in another loaded theological term. That was supposed to be funny. <laughs> he now says that this is, right, this act of God to call us, to set us free, to make us one with him, this is called grace. If you want a blanket term to describe your life, grace. He's going to pick up on this in, in, in chapter 2, verse 8, when he says, you've been saved by. But now Paul says that these two things, being chosen, adopted through Jesus, are attributed to grace. And this is a loaded term that he's going to now unpack but again, what must be noted is the conditionality of this grace. It's found in a person. It's found in him. In other words, what Paul is saying is the benefits and blessings that I'm about to define under the umbrella of grace are unreceivable outside of the person of Jesus, who is himself the embodiment of grace. Grace is not something that we grab. Grace is God's to give and ours to receive. When we receive it, we respond accordingly with praise. We now move outside of God's eternal, before the creation of the world pursuit into flesh and blood with a man pursuing us right here Right now, this morning, October 30th, 2022, Jesus is in pursuit of you. He is jealous. I'll just say that. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. I want us to see this is a present active verb. This is something we have right now, right here. We are not waiting to heaven to get redeemed. We will be glorified in heaven, right? There's distinction there, but this is something, redemption, we have right now, and it was purchased with blood, Verse seven unveils the first two things that grace does for you and I. Again, grace is not something we claim. Grace is not something we declare. Grace is something that is done to us and in us. It changes us at our very core. God's grace first redeems us. 
through his blood. This Greek word apolutrosis looks backward to the Hebrew idea of deliverance. The word picture associated with it is that of a merchant that goes down to a market and purchases something and takes it away from there. This immediately recalls Old Testament notions of deliverance of Israel and Egypt. And I want to I make a, a brief note here that redemption is more than removal. It's more than taking something out of a place. Redemption places you into something. For Israel, it was Canaan. God doesn't just rip us from the grips of enemy. He sits, he sits us in the heavens. What this language indicates is a truth often overlooked in modern church. For someone to need redemption, they need to be in bondage. Redemption necessitates that we are bound. For someone to need redemption, they have to be condemned. This is the state that you and I were in before this blood. This is why it's costly. This is why we sing of it. This is why we love him. We weren't just disinterested or disengaged with God. We weren't just aloof to his holiness and his majesty. What, the, what does the text say? We were enemies. Enemies. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us, purifies us, cleanses our conscience from dead works in order to serve the living God. It redeems our life from the pit. Okay, so, so that's his overarching term for the goodness of God. He redeems our life, right? But this is just an overarching theme. Now Paul gets even more granular, more specific. He says that the grace of God is not a theological framework that we just think about in theory. No, the grace of God gets down into the specific events of our day-to-day -day life. God's grace gets into the practical. It gets into the good. It gets into the bad. It gets into the ugly. It's extended to specific sins. And, he, and the grace brings forgiveness. And not just some, but all. God forgives all sins. We have present Present reality, right now, forgiveness of sins. He's forgiving us of our sins today. This is what real freedom looks like. And when this revelation of, of grace hits us, we become very dangerous. Freedom is being delivered from guilt, shame, Fear of condemnation and judgment, bitterness, striving, jealousy. Real freedom is experiencing this type of grace to such an extent that it makes you have thoughts like this. I could literally go do the most despicable, disgusting thing contrary to the will of God, and he'd still love me. He'd still invite me back. I'd still have a place. He would hold space for me as his own son and love me. It's that type of grace that transforms us. 
I've never met somebody that knows that type of grace and goes and does those things. Never. Moving right along, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Grace reveals the will of God so that we don't have to live in confusion. This, this goes directly against the spirit of the age. I mean, you guys know, like, people are so confused, more confused than ever before. You know, when you're not confused, you don't have to, when you're confused, you don't have to be accountable. You're just like, I don't know, figuring it out. But what happens when we see the grace of God manifest in the person of Jesus Christ is life becomes very simple, very clear. He reveals the will of God. The spirit of the age is summed up in 2 Timothy 3.7, always learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. And I would submit to you this morning that if you're receiving from people that are constantly in a pursuit of truth and have no grid or understanding for the way that reality truly is, I would submit to you that maybe we need to receive from other people. Because what the Bible teaches is that you and I don't have to be confused. Jesus, when he left his disciples, said, this is, the, this is how people will know that you walk with me. My peace I leave to you, I give to you. It's not of the world. The world doesn't give this type of peace. The sobering reality of God's gracious pursuit of you and I means that we can have clarity now. It doesn't mean we have all the answers. It doesn't mean we know everything that's gonna happen. No, actually, oftentimes, I don't know if, any, if I'm the only one in the room, but oftentimes, it is the exact opposite. What we see is that the plan from the beginning which is now having its intended effect in us now, is moving into a vision for the future. What, how many of you guys were here when, when Pastor Brian talked about that non-anxious presence? What moves us into that place where we are not an anxious presence is that we have a grid, a perspective of all of eternity, and we know exactly where we are within that perspective. So we see that we right now are in that place where we are anticipating the future. And what we see is God's pursuit of his church is the thing that will be celebrated forever. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. The mystery of the will of God is no longer a mystery. And what this text shows us is three simple things. First, that the world that we are living in is coming to an end. 
This is not doomsday. Like, I, I'm not a doomsday guy, right? I don't think I've ever preached like, repent. But the world, right, the text, the world is coming to an end. And what gives us confidence is the ability to know that God's not up in heaven going like, I wonder what, I wonder, I wonder how it's going to end. Like, I, I, I'm honestly just so curious to see what these guys do, right? What does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that, that, that Putin's heart is actually in God's hand. The Bible teaches that the governments and the political powers of the world bow to him. And that although, right, it may seem like stuff is going crazy and it may be going crazy at one point, the way that history is going, there will come a day when every person will bow to a man. He will, he will come and establish his reign and his rule. This is where history is going. When the times reach their fulfillment is shorthand in Paul's language for when Jesus returns. When this age ceases to be and God interrupts history. God surely is going to interrupt history. And Jesus himself will be doing the interrupting. He will bring with him a kingdom and he will establish his reign on the earth. And everything will be perfect. It will be better than Eden. This is what it means in verse 10 when the text says to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Or as the ESV puts it, I like the ESV for this verse better, but you know, you can't just like switch out verse translations for one verse, you know? Like it doesn't work like that. But what the ESV says is that he is uniting all things in Jesus, things in heaven and on earth. The pursuit of God's people in the person of Jesus will be the celebratory peace of heaven, centerpiece of heaven. This is what heaven's activity surrounds. Okay, that didn't make sense. Um, in other words, when all things are united under him, the loving act that made that possible is what we will praise. Look at Revelation 5. I'll give you time to, to get there if you want. Revelation 5. Then I saw, this is a throne room scene. This is giving us insight into the activity of heaven. What moves those who are close to his throne. Then I sat in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty, a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, 
do not weep. See, that's a, that's a great, um, that teaches us how to live our life. Our whole entire life should be one look, see. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. What was the song that they were singing? You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, make the connection here, with your blood, you purchased for God a people from every tribe and every language and every people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. This is the direction that history is heading. This is where all of this is going. And now we zoom out, right, from the text. Now we zoom out and we see that this is God's plan of pursuit forever. God's plan in the beginning before you and I ever needed redemption, before we ever needed forgiveness of sins, before we ever were alienated, God's plan was to pursue and to be with us. He's doing it right now. And the faithful work that he has begun, he is going to complete. And that work that he's doing in each and every one of us will be to the praise of his glory forever. God is a lover. He is a good father. And this plan to send Jesus is what frames, should frame our perspective on reality that makes us a strong church. This is it. Jesus Christ is the source, the sustainer, and the summation of all things. He has existed forever and created everything that exists. He has risen from the dead over all powers that have distorted and disobeyed his rule and reign. He has liberated a bride, a people, who are currently living in the first fruits of his kingdom to come. A day is coming when he will sit on a throne and establish his rule and reign in a new heaven and a new earth where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. This is the plan.
This is his pursuit. All reality will come under the God who loved us and pursued us. And so how I wanna end this morning, right? Like this should stir us. This should give us confidence. This is what makes us steady pillars when we walk out into the world and our friends who don't know this, right? Like they don't know this are being tossed by every bad piece of news, by every bad report, by the internal war in their mind, right? This is what makes us that non-anxious presence. This is what makes us that strong church. Thank you.